You're listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Dominic Meisters. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing albinism with Miss Perpetua Senkora, who is the Advocacy and Human Rights Officer at Under the Same Sun, and is also a lady who has albinism herself. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Dominic. So just to get our listeners on the same page and we all understand exactly what albinism is, could you please explain what it is, what is meant by this? So albinism is the lacking of pigmentation in the hair, in the eyes, and in the skin. When one is born without a melanin pigment, that is when they have albinism. And this condition can occur in any living thing. So it can happen in plants, it can happen in animals. Any living thing can be born with albinism. And it happens worldwide. It can happen in any country, in any gender. And it is also a rare condition. So when we talk about people with albinism, we also reflect how we refer to these people. Mostly, many people say use the word albino, which is kind of a, a, a labeling name. When you say albino, it is difficult to determine whether you are referring to a human being or you're referring to an animal or a plant, because all of them are albinos. But in the human rights discourse, we, refer, we, we prefer um, highlighting the humanity of people with albinism before identifying their condition. So it is better to refer to people with albinism as people first and then highlight their condition. So instead of calling me an albino, I prefer you call me a person with albinism, or if you know my name, you can just use my name, Perpetua. So one of the things that we're talking about today is obviously albinism and disability rights. So how does this fit into the disability categories? And is it the same kind of protections that we're looking for? Is it the same challenges that people with albinism suffer from? We meet this question a lot, but if you look at the definitions that have been spelled out in different um, human rights instruments and different legal instruments, we find that the term disability refers to uh, the fact that one is unable to access the normal environment the way that someone without the disability, without disability in general, can access. So with albinism, I have challenges. I'm visually impaired. My skin is highly vulnerable to sunburn, which makes me vulnerable to skin cancer. And those two make it difficult for me to access the environment around me just like anyone else that has no albinism. That makes me part of the disability community. But we also get the question of um, you don't look disabled. You, you, you don't look disabled. You don't look like someone with a disability. You have all you have hands, your feet, you, you you have eyes, and we're like, yes, I don't look disabled, but I have a disability. The issue is what makes me different from other sorts of disabilities is the nature of challenges that I face. Apart from not being able to access my environment the way I'm supposed to, I am also in danger of being hunted for my body parts, especially in Africa. In Africa, our challenges go beyond the physical challenges that we have. We also have to face the community around us 
which has negative attitude towards us, which has false beliefs about our condition. So different from other kinds of disabilities, people with albinism get an extra challenge of the negative attitude towards them that makes them at risk of being attacked just because they have albinism. That makes the, the, that type of disability kind of special um, apart from other kinds of disabilities. So you've mentioned you obviously got beyond just the physical challenges and you're having negative societal and, or community understanding towards people with albinism. Could you explain what you mean by that? In most African communities, they believe that people with albinism are ghosts. They believe that uh, body parts of people with albinism, when used in witchcraft, can be used to, made, to make potions that make people rich, that make people win votes, that make, uh, if in, in, fishermen, in, in fishing communities, they make fishermen get fish. So there have been many, many of us who have been victims of murders, uh, uh, victims of maimings, grave desecrations, just because people believe that if our body parts are used in witchcraft, they can make people rich. There is no such belief towards other kinds of disability. That is what makes albinism special from, 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 uh, in comparison to other kinds of disabilities. And not only that, Albinism comes, as I said, with a vulnerability to skin cancer. So I am born without melanin in my skin, but I am also vulnerable to getting skin cancer. So many people with albinism do not live to reach the age of 40 just because they are born with albinism and just because um, being born without the melanin, they are susceptible to skin cancer. What are the protections then, for example? so? In terms of talking about skin cancer, I imagine it's more the medical side and accessing healthcare mm -hmm. that are probably challenges. But the, how, on a continental level, mm -hmm. are the protections for persons with albinism? Do the current conventions cover these issues? I know there's new protocols that have come into place. Could you explain a bit more of what's actually being done and is it actually enough? Looking at the conventions that are in place, um, specifically uh, focusing on the um, current um, uh, disability protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, albinism is expressly mentioned in the preamble, which is a unique thing and it, it, ha it does not exist in other protocols. It does not exist even in legal frameworks in many African countries. So um, it does not only end at mentioning albinism, it identifies harmful practices against um, people with disability, um, focusing on people with albinism. It also um, talks about ritual killings that have been facing people with albinism. The protocol also covers many human rights issues pertaining to albinism, including health, including education. So it can be adequately used in addressing the human rights situation of people with albinism. But not only that, in f um, talking about solutions to the challenges that, 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 that people with albinism face, um, when you look at ritual killings, for instance, awareness raising has been a very 
instrumental way of addressing this challenge, especially, for instance, in countries like Tanzania. In 2011, 2012, there were many, many reports of ritual killings and in, in, in other attacks. But as people began uh, getting aw uh, their awareness raised, as NGOs and government agencies started engaging in awareness raising, talking about urbanism in the commu uh, community, uh, explaining its, bio its biology, explaining challenges, explaining that people with urbanism are humans just like any other, the reports have gone significantly down. As of currently, we don't, uh, we don't have that much uh, high statistics that were, were present in the previous years. But when you look at countries like Malawi, for instance, uh, the attacks have gone up. There are so many reports right now, and there's so much uh, need to raise awareness because the issue is the attitude that the society has towards people with albinism. If you change that as the route, then we expect that even the, those reports will continue going down even in other African countries apart from Tanzania. Tanzania has been a great example. You've said that they've managed to reduce it. How have you gone about awareness raising? What kind of issues have you had to present to the public? Is it just through kind of media or is it more on an engaging community level how have you found it's been the most effective? Both. Both the media and engaging. Though engaging, direct engagement with the communities is more effective because they get to actually see you. There's, there are some people who believe that we don't die, we disappear. There's some people who believe that we are ghosts, we're not human. So if you actually go to them and ask them, touch me, you, you give them your hand, you touch me. See, I'm human, it's flesh and blood. So it, it, it's really effective in, in making them actually believe in what you're actually trying to convince them, what you're saying. And uh, uh, in, 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 in the work that we've been doing with my organizations, we've visited villages, we've gone to schools, we've gone to hospitals, different areas trying to uh, get people to actually hear straight from our mouths and understand the challenges that we face and debunk the myths that have been existing from time immemorial. I know you mentioned education is mm. a challenge. Mm -hmm. how, how is this rectified through engagement with schools? Is it something simple that can be done or is it actually a more complex process that you need to kind of get them? How easy is it to change? I think it's easy. Because when we go to schools, what we do is try to uh, get the teachers to, under to understand how to accommodate a child or a student with albinism in the classroom setting, mm. which does not need very complex material. Trying to get them to understand the visual impairment that these students have, the, the skin vulnerability that these students have, and try to make them understand when they're teaching how to make them, how to make the students participate just like other students. When they're giving out tests and, ex uh, and, and exams, how to make these students be able to attempt these tests and, and exams just like other students, which doesn't need money. And also to, to counsel the students with albinism on how to carry themselves, to believe in themselves, to understand that they can uh, uh, pass just like any other students with albinism. And it has been impactful. Uh, in Tanzania, we have gone further in developing guidelines for educators. Mm -hmm. 
These guidelines have been adopted by the government, by the Ministry of Education, and they have been disseminated in different schools so that different educators can have access to them, and they have helped. Right now, in schools that we have successfully um, raised awareness in, we have students with albinism who are excelling in their exams because they are given reasonable accommodation that is not that expensive to get. Of course, there are things that need uh, a bit of money. For instance, sunscreen lotions mm. for protection of the skin and uh, vision devices, vision gear like um, spectacles and magnifying lenses. But in most communities, for teachers that have been uh, conscientized on how to make simple accommodations for people with albinism, as simple as not giving them work that is done in the sun hmm. or uh, letting them sit in front of the, class, of, of the classroom or giving them uh, helpers to help them read. It has helped a lot and things are changing. One of the things I was reading about, which I think you're speaking to kind of why education is so important and why just small accommodations make the biggest difference. Without these, what is the current situation for people with albinism and community? Are there many options for them? Or is it that they tend to be disproportionately part of the poorer communities, disproportionately excluded from society? I think currently the issue is security. They still fear for their security. I'll give an example. Recently we had a project in um, uh, the rural Tanzania, in the Lake Zone region in Tanzania, where there have been so many reports of attacks and we visited several schools. In most schools that we went to, let's say you find um, a number of 400 students, you find two, only two have albinism in 400 students. So you can get that in like two, three, four, five schools. But you meet a particular school and you find 80 students with albinism in one particular school. And that raised the question, why is it that in one school there's so many students with urbanism and in other so many schools there's one none? And what the answers that we got is like the parents are still scared to send their children with urbanism to school because they are not sure whether they're going to come back home in the evening. They still have that fear that maybe they're going to be attacked. And there are these schools that have, were designated as special schools that where to accommodate students with albinism um, for the sake of their protection. Yes. And in those schools, the notion has built in parents that if I have a kid with albinism, he should go to that school. Now, the issue is um, those schools are over, overcrowded mm. and there are no enough resources to accommodate that overcrowded school. And... The education quality is going down. At the same time, if the, uh, the schools are overcrowded, that means they won't be able to accept any more students with albinism. There are some people with albinism that are still locked up in their homes oh. because parents are not sure about whether they are, uh, they'll be safe if they send them to school because those are remote areas people walk, walk to schools. 
schools are far from home. So it's it's kind of a complicated situation for many for many students with albinism. And at the, at the same time, reasonable accommodation is not is not that much available in in in, in the schools. Of course, the, gov uh, the governments are, are being sensitized about that, and they are doing their level best to to to, to provide that in the, in the in the schools that are available. But it is still still an issue. Yeah. So if security is the main one of the main issues, mm -hmm. and understandably, mm -hmm. what's been done? Could you kind of give examples? Because this obviously is not just a Malawian and Tanzanian problem. It's mm -hmm. a continental problem, and we don't necessarily know the true mm -hmm. extent of it. Mm -hmm. Are there examples of different approaches that are being taken, or is it a pretty the same approach that all African countries are doing? I think right now, I'll give an example where I come from, because I'm, I'm, more, I'm more aware about um, Tanzania. Currently, what what the government has done is have uh, more schools built and uh, made uh, people who live near those schools attend those schools. So instead of someone going kilometers away, they have schools near their home. So that at least lessens the distance and lessens the risk because they don't have to go so far to go to school. And at the same time, that assurance, assurance that we are, protect, we are, we are protecting you guys. In our law enforcement, they, they, they usually have committees law inf uh, which consist of members of law enforcement as well as local government leaders. They have those, they call them safety and security committees. Protection of people with albinism is among permanent agendas in their meetings, and they meet like every week. So in those committees, they bring up different issues that raise in particular localities about people with albinism in terms of safe, their safety and their security. That way, they are able to at least, at least assure the people in those localities that we are talking about you guys, we are making initiatives to protect you, at least making them comfortable. But then again, because if you look at the justice system and the way the persecution of these perpetrators has been conducted, uh, many cases have been quashed. They have been thrown out of the court just because of lack of adequate evidence and many alleged perpetrators have gone back to the communities, that still makes, um, brings fear. That still brings fear to people in those communities. And it, not only that, still the attitude that people have, the, the false beliefs, the witchcraft beliefs that people have towards people with albinism is still existent. So as long as I know that there are still witch doctors out there, People are still superstitious out there. Personally, I don't feel 100% 100% safe. So if I, I if I live in, in in a town area which is populated and you know, I accept I I expect um, people with education. Most education live in town, but I don't still I still don't feel 100% um, safe. What about the person in the remote villages? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that is still an issue. You've spoken about how 
even in educated places, there's these beliefs. And I think that's something that needs to be understood. It's not necessarily just a rural problem. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a bit earlier, you know, people also beliefs center around they are able to win votes and stuff like this. So what's the link there? Because if you're winning votes, election times, mm-hmm. how is that for the albinism community, well, persons with albinism community? Is that even more insecure? And if you're relying on the police and government to implement these things, is that a challenge? It is difficult. It is difficult to feel confident about the protection system in place. It is difficult. Because the same people who are responsible for, for, for protecting us come from the same community that believes in witchcraft. So it is difficult. It is a d- difficult decision to make saying that I trust the system that is in place. I trust that they are going to keep me safe because I know they are the same people who come from the same community who, which, 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 which believes in, 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 in witchcraft. When elections come, it is well known that many people, many politicians who participate in elections consult witch witch doctors to win elections. It is well known. There was uh, once uh, a parliamentary uh, meeting, and in our parliament there used to be this um, member of parliament who is a famous witch doctor. He, he passed away a few days ago. This guy stood and spoke before the parliament, condemning his fellow members of parliament that you guys are hypocrites. You say that witch doctors are bad, witch doctors are responsible for, for harmful practices and all that, but when elections come, you guys flock <laughs> our verandas. You come to us. You consult us, which is totally true. And to prove that what he was saying is accurate, nobody stood to speak against it. Nobody stood to refute what he was saying. So it is widely known. And if if you look at Africa, witchcraft is kind of part and parcel of ancestral, you know, our ancestral heritage. So it is difficult to to get rid of it. And as long as it is difficult to get rid of, we, we people with, with albinism will always feel unsafe. So, for example, the protocol to the African Charter, which deals with um, the rights of persons with disabilities, mm. if these are the challenges that are being faced, mm. are the protections that are being offered? I mean, I know you've said, you know, it's remarkable that it's the first that's ever actually mm. explicitly identified um, albinism. albinism as an issue and something to... Is it enough? Is this just rhetoric? If you're saying, for example, in the Tanzanian case, you know, you've got your government who says one thing and does something else. Or is this actually, this is something important. This is a first step and you build from that. It is a first step. It is a first step and it is a major step. But states still need to adopt it. The protocol still needs to be domesticated by states. States still need to implement its provisions within their local legal provisions and policy systems. 
So it is a first step, but we still have lots of work to do in convincing states to domesticate it in their uh, uh, local policy and legal frameworks. And not only ending there, to implement the provisions of those policy and legal frameworks. So we still have a long way to go, though it is a major, major step. And perhaps finally, is the, I suppose, the educative approach, is that the best way to do it across the continent? Or are we kind of getting a mixed, a mixed picture of what the problem actually is continentally? Like... Malawi seems to be a high number. Mm-hmm. DRC's got problems. Even mm-hmm. South Africa's got problems. Mm-hmm. But then there's some countries we never hear about. So is it a problem that they don't need to look at? Mm. Or is this actually, we need to be educating everyone. Everyone needs to do this. We need to look at the policing system. We need to look at communities. Is there certain things which are more helpful or hindering? One thing that must be understood is that Discrimination of people with disabilities, in this sense, people with albinism, is not only in Africa, it is a worldwide thing because albinism is worldwide. But in Africa, it goes further than discrimination, it goes to harmful practices. And those harmful practices not only exist in those few countries, we have reports of those harmful practices in 29 African countries, sub-Saharan African countries. 29 is a very huge number. In those countries that have highest number of reports, those are the countries in which people are free to speak out. But in those countries that that freedom of expression is not that much exercised, the number of reports is down. And the reports that we have, that number is not conclusive because there are so many attacks that happen that are not reported, that they are not recorded. These issues happen in secret in most societies. Close family members are involved. Neighbors are involved. So people are scared to talk about them. So when you talk about awareness raising, awareness raising is an approach that can work across Africa. Because going to the root cause of why they happen, even if they happen in secret, but why do they happen? It's because people don't understand what albinism is. It's because of the beliefs that have been existing from generation to generation. So if we approach those beliefs and try to change them, we'll be sure that whether in secret or in the open, we will stop them from happening as long as people get to change how they think. Of course, it is difficult to change how um, uh, people who have lived long <laughs> and experienced uh, uh, these beliefs for, for, for a long time. That is why we, we, we propose focusing on the current young generation, the generation that was not you know, there during our ancestors and all that. We believe that the current generation that we have is open-minded, ready to, uh, uh, ready to accept new ideas into their system of thinking. And we believe that if we concentrate on the, on the current generation while raising the, uh, the awareness of the existing, uh, how can I call them, aged mm. generation, <laughs> we will be able to, 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 to attain our goal of changing that perception, though it is not a short-term thing. It takes a very, very long time, but we'll get there.
just out of interest, is are you finding particular governments are very resistant? Resistant to? To adopting any kind of measures, adopting policies, or are, generally, is there a conducive environment to this, or is it like many disability rights issues where there's a, maybe due to lack of understanding, but a bit of a pushback? I won't say resistant, because no government, no government wants to look bad. Look, no government wants to, to, to be termed as not caring about uh, the, the rights of its citizens. But they are sort of slow. The political will is sort of, um, it, it's slow, it's slow. I guess it's because um, solving human rights issues uh, in most in most instances requires funds, and many many governments do not put these issues in their financial priorities. So as a result, even in their planning, budgeting, even in their data collection, they are not taken that much on board. As a result, uh, they are improperly approached. And the problems are elongated. They are here from day to day to day to day to month to month. And um, that is why we have, we have been lobbying. We have been lobbying for our agendas to be taken aboard the planning system, the government planning systems. So that in the end, when we are considered in the especially in the budgeting. We expect that we are going to have funds to implement the recommendations that we give to the government on how to improve the challenges, to improve um, solutions to the challenges that we people with albinism face. So it's, um, they're not rejecting what we say, but they are sort of slow in implementing what we recommend to them. Well, thank you very much for joining us today and giving us a very thorough, broad understanding of some of the challenges and how even if there are protections, we still need to go further and we need, it's a, it's a lot of understanding, I think, of what um, albinism actually is and how it is. As you say, it's worldwide. It's not just limited to people. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for the platform, Dominique. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Dominique Maestras, in conversation with Perpetua Sankoro. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore further human rights issues. Mm-hmm.